Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study data science leadership, how to be a great leader, how to have more impact in your career. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is a presentation that I did to a number of CEOs. And the topic was to explain data science in general and what it can do for the for their different businesses. The CEOs were all from different industries and had businesses of different sizes and at different stages. It's something that I really enjoy doing, helping people make better use of this capability. And that is both for technical and non-technical people. So I was really fortunate to have this opportunity. I hope you enjoy the presentation. Here's a talk about how to get more value from data science. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for coming over. Raining in the morning. So as you guys know, the strengths of Innovia are on the lean side, on the process reengineering, process automation, and then the artificial intelligence side. So that's the bit that I'm here to speak to you about. And I'll go through a little bit about me very just really quickly. So I have this podcast called Data Futurology, where I'm interviewing heads of data science, chief data scientists, chief data officers, chief analytical officers, and I get them to share their tips, their challenges that they faced throughout their career and how they got to where they are. I just started as general manager for Data and Digital at Liberty Financial. Before that, I was head of data science at ANZ. Before that, I had my own consulting business in this space. But what are we going to talk about today? The focus is on the marriage between automation and data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. So we'll go through what can data science and machine learning do, and we'll have a bit of an overview, how to build data science teams, what do you need to get value from the automation side, and then looking at how that plays in organizations. So when we think of machine learning and of artificial intelligence, this is what most people think about. The automation, yes, the cost cutting, as we heard before, right, always in front of people's minds. Sometimes there's a, what I think is an, almost an image problem with this space to say, oh, AI, that's just going to take away all of our jobs. But there was actually a survey done by MIT that they were trying to find out what do companies care about when they're looking at AI. They got about 3,000 companies to vote, and these were some of the results. So we find that the majority of them, of companies, are looking to sustain a competitive advantage with artificial intelligence. They're looking to move into new businesses, enter new markets, and work better with suppliers through artificial intelligence. So in terms of the focuses, the first four don't even consider cost reduction, and it only comes in under number five. So the idea for businesses and for business leaders is to say, how can we use AI to create new solutions that will help us grow our business, that we can offer better services to our customers, that will give us a better insight on market movements and what people are looking for from our firm. So more on the creative side of how to apply machine learning and then focus on the cost reduction. How does it work? I know that machine learning is usually a term with a lot of hype, but also a lot of mystique about it. So it's very foggy. People say, you know, machine learning is this or machine learning can do that. But what is a working mental model about how it works? I'll compare it to software engineering and I'll put up three boxes up here with different colors. So I'll use this as a legend. There'll be parts that humans do and parts that machines do. If we think about software engineering, 
we're looking to create a, a program or some sort of automation. There's an input, there's instructions, and then there's an output, right? So if you think of doing a calculation on your calculator, you would be putting in the input, so the numbers, three and four, and the instruction is multiply. So three times four, you hit equals, and it gives you the output, it goes 12. So when you take that to creating a software, a programmer, a software developer does the same thing. It's getting the input for the program, and the developer has put in the rules of what the program should do in order to then you run it, and you get the output. So humans, humans, and then machines. In the case of machine learning, we have the same three buckets, but who does the responsibility on these is flipped, where we have the humans giving the input and we have humans doing the output or telling the machine a result that it can learn from and the machine does the bit in the middle the working out what is the steps to go from here to here so in this case in machine learning the humans become the teachers and we are teaching the machine on how to do a task so in the same way that you would teach a child to say at school you teach them a math problem and you say, here's how you do it, here's your input, here's your, how you get to the output. Then you test them, you give essentially an exam to the kid to see how well they're doing. And then they're able to go from A to B by having developed the instructions, essentially, which are the algorithms, their recipes on how to go from point A to point B. So we're talking about how through machine learning, we can automate a lot of processes. Machines can do tasks that are sometimes repetitive, now these days a little bit more interesting with image recognition, voice recognition, etc. And there's a huge focus on the automation, but I think that a piece that's less discussed is using machine learning for humans. How machine learning can help us make better decisions, understand human biases, and help us uh, create better businesses. And this is a, an example. So for the people that haven't seen, this is a representation of a predictive model, so a machine learning model. This is called a decision tree, and in the machine learning space, this is the introductory one. So the easiest type of model for a machine to do, but it provides a lot of value for people, for humans. So for the people here today, who has seen a machine learning model before? No? Good. So this is the, essentially your first. This is great. So in this case, this is a data set available online, which is around who lived and who died after the crash of the Titanic. And in the data, you have information about the people. You have their names, you have where they came from, what type of class of ticket they had, whether they were male or female, etc. And here we're trying to predict or understand who survived the Titanic. We run it through this machine learning model called the decision tree, and it comes out with this. Where in first, in first inspection, it kind of looks like gibberish, really. But at each point before the break in the branch, you ask a question and the machine tells you the best way that it can start to predict and create insights from the data. So in this case, it's saying, is the passenger male? If the passenger is male, are they an adult? If they're an adult, they had 20% survival rate. So obviously this comes to the well-known women and children first. And in this case, the algorithm is providing the insight where at the bottom here it's creating different buckets where it's trying to make these buckets as pure as possible in terms of the objective that we gave it, which is survival. So it's trying to give us, through simple rules, the algorithm's trying to give us buckets that are all survivals or no survivals. 
And because of the data, generally these buckets will be imperfect. There will be some impurity. And that's where the accuracy of the machine learning model comes in, where according to application, sometimes getting an 80% accuracy is fantastic. Not every machine learning model is sort of 99% accurate and in, in reality, very, very few are. So in this case, we're saying if the passenger was male and an adult, 20% survival rate. If the passenger is male or was male and an adult, uh, sorry, and not an adult, so child, were they in third class? So were they sort of bottom of the barrel? Yes, low survival rates. Were they above, second or first class? 100% survival rate. So this is a way, and then we can look at the women, and also we see a strong difference in the survival rate according to the class that they were in. So for us, walking in into, if I had asked you at the beginning, who do you think would have survived the Titanic? You probably would have thought, you know, there's a women and children first. And that's sort of a high-level rule of thumb that we always have in business. We always have something that we've created from experience, something that lives in our business in terms of how it runs, how it operates then the machine learning models can help you do two things. It can help you automate decision-making in your organizations, and it can help you give you insights like these to understand what are the actual metrics and the buckets that you can do to create uh, better decisions by using machine learning to extract the rules hidden in the data. So this slide is around using machine learning for humans versus the traditional application of uh, machine learning for machines or for automation. We'll talk about building a data science team. And in team building, there's really great research that has identified that once you pay people enough, not too much, but not too little, so enough, people care about three things in their job, and it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. For data scientists, it's the same. So autonomy is around being able to, for you to decide what you work on and how you tackle the challenges. Mastery is you getting better and better at the things that you want to get better at. And purpose is that your team and your organization are making a difference in something that you care about. So that can be the vision of the organization or that your team is helping and you can see the difference that your team makes in achieving the results of your organization. This is the common research of what people care about and how to get them to do a great job. Definitely applies to data scientists. And the other conversations around data scientists is that data scientists love to learn and to be continually challenged, and that's true. But the punchline or maybe the insight here is from what I'm seeing, the companies that are trying to build data science talent and that are going about it the best way and getting the top talent today, which obviously there's a talent war, what they're focusing on is creating data products. So embedding data science into software, putting their algorithms out into production and being able to create value from the data, either selling the data or creating software that has machine learning embedded in it. The companies that are winning today in terms of getting the talent are the ones that can offer that to the data scientists as part of the recruitment enticing process. And that's because that's where most of the value is being created. And this is done at the moment in, in all sorts of organizations. And I spoke to a guy through the podcast. I spoke to a guy that works in oil and gas and he's looking, he's um, building or has built his data science team to improve efficiencies in oil and gas in the production factories. And to almost anyone, we go, oh, okay, that doesn't sound very exciting. If you're coming in as a data scientist, as a, an AI practitioner, you can work on really exciting projects and you go, oh, you know, oil and gas improving efficiencies, maybe that's not great. What these guys did is they installed about 20,000 sensors across their plant 
they stream that in real time onto the cloud, and then they've got their data scientists to build their predictive models to say how to improve the efficiency of the plant in real time. And then when they go to pass that to the operator, instead of saying, hey, Paul, you need to be doing this better, Paul gets a pop-up that says, hey, Paul, two weeks ago, you were doing this exact same shift as you're doing today, but you were 2% more efficient. Would you like to know why? Would you like to know what you were doing? I wouldn't be able to help myself. I'd be like, yes, tell me, tell me, tell me. And that's what they found in rolling out this data-driven product. They found that by getting, asking the question and sort of teasing the person whether they would like to know what they did better last time, they had much better engagement because it was a pull. They did that for about nine to 10 months and then they started to change what the machine showed to say other people that have done this shift have been 3% better, would you like to know their secret? So we go from you did it better, to they did it better, to then now they're moving to the how do we do it best overall. So essentially that's a way to get the pull in behavioral change through machine learning through a data-driven product, which is what data scientists care most about. We'll talk about uh, implementation across different companies. There's always an element of data strategy. A lot of people go, where do I start? How do I do this? And as a starting point, I always break it down to a four-stage sort of four stage process, very closely tied to RPA and automation, and you'll see a lot of overlap between them. So first step in a data strategy, I call it get it. Get the data. Get the data. The data can be created by humans, so manually entered, or data being created by machines. This is one of the touch points with RPA. Every process that you're automating is creating a lot of data that you should be capturing because that'll help you create a more intelligent company in the future. So humans and machines will be are creating data. And then this part, I have it as the types of ways that you can get data. You can buy it, you can get it through partnerships, you can scrape it from the web, or it can be in your organization, obviously. But I have sort of this little diagram because one of the things that I've done in the past that has worked really well is using data from different divisions in organizations, especially sort of for medium or larger organizations where there's a lot of separation between divisions. Getting information from a division that seems quite far away or quite disconnected from your division, being able to get data from their side gives you a competitive advantage in what you can do internally and what you can show to your customers. So step one is around data capture and data acquisition. It's called get it. Second one is store it, which is around building a data lake or a data warehouse. For this, I highly, highly recommend going to cloud as soon as you can or with whatever you can. Sometimes there's privacy, there's uh, regulatory restrictions, but these, obviously, the big three players are great options and they all have a flagship data warehousing product that is excellent. So Amazon has Redshift, Google Cloud has BigQuery, and Azure has their Azure Data Warehouse. All really good. The only one, the only other one, if you're looking at this side, the only other one that I would recommend to throw in the mix is called Snowflake. It's about the same cost as these, and it's slightly easier to use, but it has a lot of benefits in using semi-structured information. So it's really good. And a lot of people say, what's the difference between a data lake, a data warehouse, and a data swamp? which is obviously always the joke there maybe. The way that I like to think about it is if you think about broadcasting of shows, of TV shows, right? How that's going to streaming and there's obviously YouTube and there's sort of a whole mix there at the moment that has developed. The way that I think about it is a data warehouse is like TV. 
in the sense that you have certain shows where they're well scripted, they have a set duration, they run at the same time every week. They're dependable, right? They're there, you can count on them. So TV is a data warehouse. A data lake, I think that the aim should be to make it as a Netflix, where you have lots of different types of shows with variable lengths, where you can go and you pull that information out. Everything is very well produced at high quality content, but there's a bigger catalog there that you can start to investigate by yourself. And then the data swamp, in my mind, that's YouTube. Anyone can create anything. You know, a dude walking down the street can film themselves and put that on YouTube. That's sort of very low value. So that's step two, store it. Step three, analyze it. Around data science, we heard about using R and Python, which are the programming languages of data scientists. On the reporting side, uh, Tableau is really good. Power BI is the other one that I would put in there as really good to do enterprise-wise, wide delivery of insights. Power BI obviously ties into Office really well. And then the last step, deploy it. Now, at this point, for data scientists, because we come from a technology background, we think about deploying, it just means put our product, our models into a software that people use. It goes into production and we're done. But actually, the biggest piece is around change management. And in the discussions that we saw before around bringing RPA into organizations, tying it with machine learning, the piece around getting adoption and walking people through the stages of how they will do their work differently and or what will they do now that they, as a job, now that they don't do what they were doing before. Planning for those processes and that rollout is key. So change management is definitely um, super important here. Now we go to putting it all together, essentially, right? How do you become a learning organization? And I had a discussion through over breakfast about this. And it's like, okay, great. Data scientists can do amazing things. How do you pick what to do out of everything that can be done? How do you derive business value from it while focusing on innovation and not killing the world of possibilities that this could open, open up? So what I've found as a really good way to guide through that process is by combining design thinking, lean startup principles, and agile, which comes more from a software development background. So with design thinking, is these stages in light blue. It's a, a methodology created by a company called IDEO, which if you look at the top 25 most innovative companies in the world, IDEO consults heavily with 24 out of the 25, and the 25th is them. They're always sort of really pushing the envelope on innovation, and they created this methodology called design thinking. It's about a seven-step process, but for me, the crux of it is find problems that your customer, internal customer or external customer, but find problems that your customer cares so deeply about that they've created or they've hacked together a solution and they've taken that solution as far as possible, as far as they can, which sometimes, you know, that's a mammoth Excel spreadsheet that runs for an hour or two and they click run and they have to go get a coffee or lunch. That might be something that they really care about, something that's really important for them that obviously drives business value. And when you find that, Thing that they really care about that has business value and that sits in the sweet spot of, in this case, data science, that you can radically transform that. It's a great place to start. So you can pick that as a starting point. Then you come into the lean startup, which is the build, measure, learn loop, which is uh, now sort of more widely known in popular culture. The thing that I think is missing is that when you design this loop, it's actually done backwards. So you start with, what do I want to learn 
out of this experiment because we're all trying to do innovate. So we're, we're doing new things. So you start with what do I want to learn, which is a hypothesis or a business question. Then how can I measure that I'm learning that thing that I want to learn? Come up with that metric essentially and then you go into what do I need to build in order to measure that and the build needs to be as small as possible and um, during breakfast when this came up I was saying that a lot of data scientists like are obviously very good with maths and going through their studies and the university in maths we always think we get one shot at the exam and we need to do as well as possible so data scientists I find that we really struggle with this Part of the piece where you want to do really small iterations that are quick and dirty and they are imperfect but they lead you to learn very quickly if you can have a fast turnaround of this cycle so we need to when working with data scientists make sure that you get them out of that mindset of it needs to be done once and it needs to be perfect and go to quick and dirty is your best friend and then once you've done a few iterations of this loop you've learned what actually should be done and that's when you go into agile where you have a, a product backlog and a sprint and you're doing this at, at bigger scale with a lot of customer involvement so it's co-created so in terms of summary the key points is always start with a, a question or a hypothesis something that you want to learn something that you're wondering about your business that's the best entry point Remember that machine learning can be used for automation and to make better decisions by getting insights from the machine on things that we as humans couldn't see due to the vast scale of data. And um, with the last one in terms of putting it together, iterate through to a learning organization. So besides that, just to wrap up, I mentioned this at the beginning. So I have this podcast, there we go. So interviewing chief data scientists, chief data officers, GMs of data science around their journey and how they manage their teams, how they get value out of data, what they do in their businesses. I started about six months, just over six months ago. We have about 5,000 listeners from around the world and we're on about 15 or 20 different podcast apps. That is all for me. I know that we're tight on time, so sorry for rushing through it all. Do we have any questions? Yes, sir. In businesses other than actual, do you, with your data scientists, do you generally find that that separate vision that gets not vision, but a group that gets created? And where does that generally sit within the business? Super interesting, super interesting. So the sense, the view in the industry at the moment is that data science is a pretty new capability being developed. And for that reason, for now, it should be centralized so we can get standardized methods of working, processes, software, development pathways for the people, all of that side. Get it centralized, act almost as a consulting company where you can assign a few people from the team to be fixed in terms of working with different departments and maybe you rotate them but the data science team get it centralized to do a lot of the foundational work that then all the other divisions can leverage i think that will be on that point for a few years around a decade i think until Almost every business gets their, their foundational work in terms of building a data warehouse or a data lake and understanding how to apply data science in that organization. And I think at that point, and obviously some companies will see it before others, the data science department will get disbanded and you'll have data scientists in all different departments through that decade. Then this next decade, a lot of people in the departments will upskill, but the data scientists will be sort of the technical leader that will come in and, and help use this foundational capability. But I think that for now, it, that will be built. 
I think it's better to be sitting uh, under the business. When I was at ANZ, I was reporting to the divisional CEO and now at Liberty also reporting to the CEO. So then you get the business pressures. And when I started at ANZ, I wasn't reporting to the divisional CEO, right? I was to a uh, head of Australia, New Zealand. And then we did some work for customers that helped grow revenues and get customers that were just unprofitable. We made them profitable really quickly. Anyway, the CEO came down when he found out our results for the year. We didn't have a revenue target or anything. He comes down, he goes, I didn't know you nerds could make money. Good on you. Like, thanks, mate. <laughs> but essentially having that proximity to the business creates the pressure that gets people to think, the data scientists to think outcome instead of research, which I think we tend to get lost in. Yes, sir. So so how important is it having a cohesive data strategy? Not as important as I think people like to make out. So when I started at ANZ, in the division that I was in, which it's compared to ANZ as a group, this division has 10% of the workforce, so only 5,000 people, only 5,000 people for ANZ, but the division brings in 50% of the revenue. So obviously a big contributor. In that division, there was no data science or data scientists at all. So I was the first hire and one of the executives said, oh, come and do that data stuff over here. I was like, great, we definitely have, we are, are very mature with our data practices. But as a contrast, on the retail side, because in that case, there's sort of millions and millions of customers, you can't have a high-touch business. That side, a lot more data scientists, a lot more mature data practices. So we went sort of lean startup, really, on it. So we created something lean and mean and creating value quite quickly. What we ended up finding is that we were feeding back and cross-pollinating our practices to the data mothership on the retail side, which was about 300 people between technology and retail working on data, either creating at the data warehouse or doing the analytics piece. So I think that going lean really helps making iterative and going through the slides that I was showing before. So essentially applying this Gartner three-step one, this one, and having an overall view of the data strategy with the four stages before. But yeah, even organizations that seem mature are have a lot to improve. Any last questions? In your data strategy model, you talked about data store analysis, etc. Traditionally, one of the big deals, particularly where you control the input, wherever it's coming from, is about cleaning. Yes. You haven't mentioned that yet. And now there's a lot more kind of external, unstructured data input where you don't have to control over that anymore. You want to comment about how you might rely on the analysis if you don't have control of the data in the first place? Huge, huge problem. I put it in the store it, and, and you're absolutely right. I think I should rename it to like clean it and store it. It's a huge problem. So for example, one of my friends works, uh, he's head of data science at a hedge fund, and they were buying data about stock market trades. They buying data from like 16 different providers. And every provider, they said, you know, we have sub-second accuracy on our data. And then they would get it, they would start looking at it, and turns out that for out of the last 20 years, they had sub-second accuracy in the last two years. And for the 18 years before that, everything magically happened at midnight. So then they were like, well, this is useless. And then they were having to piece the puzzle by getting lots of different providers and doing that sorting, cleaning, prioritizing of data to get some sort of 
better visibility in terms of the picture in order to go down the following steps. So there's definitely a big piece here around the clean it. And one of the myths with data scientists is that the stat is that 80% of the data scientist time is on cleaning the data. And that is totally accurate if the end point that you think of is creating the machine learning model. So really in that sort of workflow, it's 20% of the time is creating the machine learning model. But then after that, you take it into production and people don't react or don't deal with it the way that you expect. There's a whole bunch of unforeseen problems in taking it into production. And that's another sort of big piece of work. So in that full value chain, the cleaning the data is still the majority, but it's not sort of the 80% that's thought of, but probably about a 25 or 30 and a huge, huge problem. Correct, because then you have to start introducing rules at this stage to say if it's this code but not in this customer, change it to this, so then you can start to make sense of it downstream. Awesome. Thank you very, very much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their, their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.